0: I was leaving home to come over to church this morning. Sham said to me, "You haven't seen your people for two months. Make sure you greet them." <laughs> so greetings. <laughs> and she didn't add what she usually does: "Make sure you smile at them." But I'm smiling already, right? So. <laughs> but seriously, we did connect with some of you at various occasions, and the the question always was, even this morning, somebody said, "Well, oh, how was your vacation?" The short answer is good, but let me give you a slightly longer answer. Uh, I think the greatest gift that these two months give to me is just freedom from the tyranny of time, that, that ruthlessness with which a week has to be structured, because week after week after week, a sermon has to be ready by a certain time. Just the freedom of the mental space from that uh, was really helpful. But at the same time, there were lots of other things I did. At the, I preached at three conferences, one at the beginning of July, one at the end of July, and one this past week at Muskoka Baptist uh, Conference. I spoke in a couple of churches in the city. Uh, Sham and I had the privilege of continuing to meet with our mentoring groups. We met with international workers who were home on furlough. We Skyped with others who were overseas. I did a couple of counseling sessions, did three weddings uh, as well. So it was all in all, it was just, uh, uh, I think in some senses, a beautiful picture of what uh, a refocused life might look like in the in, in the future. But it's always my delight to be back here. to pre- This is what I miss the most. I'm just so happy to be here with you this morning. Now, uh, at the that very first conference that I spoke at at the beginning of the summer, it was at the RZIM Summer Apologetics Conference, and I was assigned the topic, I don't usually get assigned topics, but this, because the theme of the whole conference was, what does it mean to be human? And one of the four messages I spoke on was, what does it mean to be human at work? And I thought coming back for Labor Day weekend would be a good opportunity to share with you some of the insights that God gave me during that time. I don't have the time to look at all all that I shared there. But let me just take a few moments to share that with you this morning. And the perspective that I came at it was, you know, 35 years ago I left so-called work at Atomic Energy of Canada to come here. And I asked myself the question, if I were now going back to work... What would I take back with me from what I have learned in 35 years of ministry here? And that was an interesting lens from which to look at that. And I realized that there's no difference. There really is no difference. As well, there shouldn't be. There's no such thing as secular and sacred anyway as far as God is concerned. All the work that you do from Monday to Friday is as sacred as the work that we do here. Also from Monday to Friday and this end of the weekend as well. So here are some things I would come back to. I mean, the first kind of big picture thing to put behind all of this is that you know the early chapters of the bible tell us that god created human beings and put them to work and very quickly when they rebelled against god this that sinfulness affected two things it affected their relationship with each other and it affected the way they did the work thorns and thistles were now going to come up and interfere with that unmixed delight that work was supposed to be and so really the essence of work is that we are in relationships with people who are sinful, like us, we and others. And a whole lot of work is intended to deal with those issues. It shouldn't be surprising, because if you look at the book of Ephesians, it tells us that there are three primary arenas in which spiritual formation happens. None of them is in this church building. It's marriage, parenting, and work. Those are the three primary areas in which spiritual formation takes place. And so it's not surprising that in the work environment, spiritual formation is actually taking place. As sinful people rub shoulders with other sinful people and are attempting to do the work that God has called them to do. And university students, whom you're going to be, you're going back to school to study. Uh, some of these things will apply right where you are, but you're also getting ready to work one day, and so it's a good thing for you to have that perspective, clearly. So wherever you are on that spectrum, uh, either working or getting ready to work, some of you who are in university already are doing part-time work as well, so a lot of this thing applies to us. And as Susanna reminded us, or I'm I'm sorry, as Rowena did, uh, work is for those who are staying at home, raising families, which is as much, probably some of the greatest, most noblest tasks that can be called to do as well. Alright, the first and most important thing I think is to do is to watch out for pride. Why is that? You see, the, uh, the early church fathers call this the deadliest of the seven deadly sins. The reason for that is the essence of the mindset of the devil. For example, in the, in the book in, in Isaiah, one of the pastors that theologians think talks about the enemy. He says, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. I will, I will, I will, I will. It was all upward mobility. That was the, the essence of the mindset of the enemy. And so it's not surprising, there was also the essence of the first temptation. When Satan came in the garden to tempt Adam and Eve. The thing that hooked Eve was... Not just that... He says that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food... And there was a delight to the eyes... And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate... And she also gave some to her husband who was with her... And he ate it... If you read the account in Genesis chapter 2... It says God made many trees in the garden... That were good for food... And were delightful to the eyes... It wasn't those two things that were the real issue... The central issue was... It'll make you wise... You will become like gods yourself. You can independently of God determine what is good and what is not good. And it was that that hooked her. And that the tree was desired to make one. She took of the fruit and she ate it. So what was the essence of the mindset of the enemy? Is not surprisingly the essence of his first temptation that hooked our ancestors as a result of what we've been plunged into this situation that we are in. Which by the way, why it's also Universal. This is one thing every single one of us will struggle with to a greater or to a lesser degree. And you know, it has an opportunity to flourish in the workplace. That's the, that's the interesting thing to keep in mind. Way back in the book of Genesis, you remember that the first 11 chapters before God begins his redemptive work with Abraham. In Genesis 12, the first 11 chapters are, are called primeval history. And they're a record of three major rebellions of human beings. The first was Adam and Eve. The second was the time of Noah. And the third was when they built the Tower of Babel. And notice the thrust behind the Tower of Babel. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. That's the thrust. God's command to them was to spread everywhere. They said, no, we're going to unify in one place and we're going to build something that's going to give us a name. Substitute for the Tower of Babel the corporate, the academic, or the social ladder, and those are the modern-day towers of Babel that we're building. It's poss- if a pride thrives in the academic world. I think it was John Stout, who said second only to uh, ecclesiastical pride is intellectual pride. Thrive, pride thrives in the academic world. Pride thrives in the business, in the world, in the corporate world, and times of everybody's climbing up the ladders. And so. Making a name for ourselves, the essence of the spirit of Babel, is is in us. And it flourishes in the workplace. Now, you might say, well, just a minute, aren't aren't we supposed to work hard and be excellent and, and, and do well? Yes. But there's a fundamental difference between ambition, which is destructive, and aspiration. And as always, I'm indebted to my mentor, Eugene Peterson, for the difference. He said, here's ambition. He says, our culture encourages and rewards ambition without qualification. We are surrounded by a way of life in which betterment is understood as expansion, as acquisition, as fame. Everyone wants to get more, to be on top no matter what it is on top of is admired. And it isn't that this thing is unique to our culture, it's that it is admired in our culture right now. Whereas earlier on hubris and pride was recognized. As something that's destructive. Ambition on the other, uh, aspiration on the other hand, he says aspiration on the other hand is an impatience with mediocrity. It is the channeled creative energy that moves us towards growth in Christ, shaping goals in the spirit. And this is the key sentence. If we take the energies that make for aspiration and remove God from the picture, replacing him with our own crudely sketched self-portrait, we end up with ugly arrogance. That's the difference. You guys the difference between aspiration and ambition. Aspiration belongs. We need to, we need to aspire to that kind of greatness, to excellence. The interesting thing is, aspiration never divides. Ambition always divides. Ambition comes in between because somebody else is climbing up that same ladder and you get pushed or you get pushed aside. Aspiration, because it focuses on excellence and expressing the creative energies of Jesus, is satisfaction in itself. It doesn't have anything to do with where you are compared to somebody else. So watch out for pride. It has an opportunity to flourish in the workplace. And so the exact counter to that is to cultivate the mind of Christ. I mean, Rovina and I didn't connect on this other than the theme. And yet the passage of scripture that she chose for reading earlier on is so central to this. That is the mind of Christ. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You know, I don't know how many times I've read and preached this passage. But this morning as, as we were reading. This is why I always say, stay alert throughout a worship service. You never know when God's going to speak to you. I was just struck. He says, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. i would never seen it that way before. It's basically God was saying is, I'm not asking you to do something impossible. This is a gift that's been given to you. It is already yours in Jesus. You need to live it out. You can't create this mindset. What I'm going to talk before you is not humanly possible. But the, the, but the promise that God yeah, and reinforced for me this morning is, it's already yours. Just let it come out. Let it come out in the work environments And the essence of the mindset of Christ, what is it? He said, ha, though he was equal in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Therefore God exalted him. This is what somebody called downward mobility. He was God, he made himself human. He was human, he made himself servant. It's every step down. Notice the exact opposite of the satanic mindset. I will climb, I will climb, I will climb. Jesus said, I will climb down, I will climb down, I will climb down. Therefore, God exalted him. This is so relevant for us in the workplace. This is nothing to do with church for an hour, although we should be like this in church too. This is an instruction in the workplace where we are. to to embrace this step of downward mobility and let Christ exalt us. Now remember, humility has many ways to to be defined. And the scriptures talk about humility as one way is to have an honest estimate about yourself and let it be known. Uh, To show you a beautiful example of this humble mindset at work. This past summer, those of you who subscribe to Ken and Claire's prayer letter uh, might have read this. But uh, here's an extract from the July May Pale Prayer letter. She says, last month we told you we were saying goodbye to our finance director, Lem, at work. Before leaving, she shared the biggest thing she learned while working with us. You know what it is? How to own, admit, and learn from her mistakes. Lem went on to say how she had started with us three years ago with a lot of pride. But watching Ken and learning from him, she told the 10 plus people gathered for her goodbye lunch, that she's amazed at his humility, and she owes him so much for teaching her to be a better person. No sooner had she said this when the other managers chimed in. Yes, no place we've ever worked is like this. Elsewhere you feel you must brush your mistakes under the carpet or blame someone else. That's pride. But here there is a safe climate because the boss models and encourages humility and honesty. This is an incredible living out of the mindset of Christ in the work environment. This is the counter to pride. And it is noticed by people who are not Christ followers. Because you see, they are not impressed by what we don't do that they do. They are impressed by what we do that they cannot do. And and she said, I came in with pride and I'm going out with some humility. Because I have a boss who has practiced humility before me. You live it out in the workplace. Also, another dimension of that. Humility, Jesus says that he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped at. But he waited for God to exalt him. That's something else that's very relevant in the workplace. Because you know, even if we are careful to avoid ambition and are working hard, we legitimately aspire to be moved up the ladder to positions of influence, if we're good at it, but sometimes it doesn't come. What happens if you are left in obscurity? So that's the next thing I want to talk about. uh, How do you handle obscurity in the workplace? Because just like with Jesus, humility is not always honored. Those might be the individuals that notice you. But it is the pushers who get up the ladder, right? So what happens when you're passed over? What happens when there's no recognition? Obscurity is important for us to handle in the workplace. And the person that teaches us a lot about obscurity in the Bible is king david now you say what do you mean how can a king teach us about obscurity well bear with me for a minute do you know there are 14 chapters in the bible for abraham there are 14 chapters in the bible about jacob it's 66 chapters about david the central story in the bible is about david and the important thing is it's not about a prophet it's not about a priest it's not about a pastor it's about a layman I mean, he was a king, that's okay, he was an important layman, but he was a layman nonetheless, he wasn't a religious figure. Isn't that interesting that the person in the Bible that we know the most about happens to be a layman, not a religious figure? What does that say to us about the importance of your work? Because the central story in the Bible is about the work you do from Monday to Friday every week. The second thing that's interesting about the life of David is that there isn't a single miracle in the life of David. Which means work. David's story trains us to recognize the spectacular in the ordinary. And most of us, when we're doing our work, we're living ordinary lives most of the time. It is isn't a life full of miracles. Although they can happen once in a while. And we'll come to that in a few moments. So David is very interesting. And David in the valley of obscurity, before he became king, David spent years and years in the valley of obscurity when no one noticed him. In fact, the morning when Samuel went to anoint Jesse's sons, Jesse didn't even think he had a son to call. He just called the other seven. It was Samuel who had to say, because God said to Samuel, No, 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 no. He said, So Lord, why would you send me? Hey, Jesse, do you have anybody else? Oh, yeah, I forgot. There's a little runt out there who watches my sheep. <laughs> Something like that is what happened. So this obscure little boy was summoned, and he must have come running. I don't know what they look like when they come from the sheep pen. Samuel anointed him. And what happened to him after that? He went right back to the sheep. He went right back into obscurity. And what David did in those sheep watching days. Is so crucial to prepare us for the world of work. What did David do when he was watching sheep? David learned to get in touch with his soul. That's what David did. When the sheep were down and he looked up at the sky He had all that time of quiet. David got in touch with his own soul. The interesting thing is, this man about whom we know the most about his exterior life, we also know the most about his interior life. You know more about David's interior life because there are hundreds of psalms that he has written. You know every emotion that tore this man apart that sent him off into ecstasy. And everything in between. The layman again, this layman with a life without any miracles, is the man that we know the most about on the inside. What, does, what do you think God is interested in? And then, what David found inside, he set to poetry and music. Not, not everybody, I, I can't write poetry, and I certainly can't sing. But have you ever noticed, it's what his, was the songs that took him to the palace? <laughs> When Saul got into his evil spirit moods, they said, go find somebody for me. And they said, there's a man that sings. It was all the singing and soul songs that opened the door for David to get to that. See how God exalts? Not in the ways in which we think. He looks at a man who's looking at his own soul and is bearing that soul and writing it. Do you think David had any idea that thousands of years later people would be just drinking this morning, reading again in the Psalms, they say, oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you so much for your word. It feeds my soul every morning. He had no idea. He had no idea of the significance of his work that was far far more significant the work he was going to do and then David goes into the palace and notice what he does in the palace he does two things for David he's armor bearer which means he protects Saul physically and he also sings to calm his soul, which is to quell the effects of sin in his life. What a beautiful illustration that you, are, you folks and me are being sent into the workaday world to do two things. To further the work of creation, which is protect the human being, and to counter the work of sin by bringing harmony and peace into it. Beautiful summary, right? Further the work of creation and counter the work of sin. So can you think of your work like that? I'm going back this week to counter the effects of sin in the people around me and my own life. And I'm going back into work to further the effects of creation. And we'll see that taking shape as we continue. So what does that say to us about us in obscurity? First of all, deepen your intimacy with God. In those times of obscurity in the workplace. And by the way, in our culture, there's no one more obscure than the mother who's staying at home raising children. So it applies to her work as much as to anybody else's. Deepen your intimacy with God. Learn to look inside. Your reactions at work are crucial windows into your soul. Because you're in a web of relationships all the time. How do you respond to your boss? How do you respond to your colleagues? What happened in that meeting that got you all upset or that you got your. Get into the habit of reflecting upon it. Take some time at the end of a work week. Or even a work day to say, what went on in my soul? How did I treat the people around me today? And jot down, write down, journal, keep some record of it. That's what David did. David got in touch with his soul. Your your real work will come out of that. That's the real work that's going on. It doesn't matter whether you're working in a church or anywhere else. Whether you're a secretary or a garbage collector or a CEO. These principles are exactly the same. You're furthering the work of creation and you're countering the work of sin. And the first thing you have to do is to counter the work of sin in your own life. So when you find these things, take them to God. That's what David did. David poured out his emotions to God. This purpose of self-examination is not to have a dear diary mind dump session at the end of the day. It is to take it to God. So that you can begin to talk to God about the ugly things you see, the joyful things you see, the mundane things that you see in your life, the perplexing things that you see, and send them back to him. That's how you're getting, you're deepening your intimacy with God. It's part of preparation for the palace. That's what David, David didn't know it. But that was the work that got him ready to do the work of preparation for kingship. So that's one thing, deepen your intimacy with God. Secondly, serve others at work. It's interesting that the first work of the future king was to serve the present king. David's first work as future king of Israel was to serve very humbly the present king. Armor bearing and soul calming. You know, it's interesting in chapter 16 of First Samuel, when Saul gets into his mess, and we looked at that in the summer, he says the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. But God anointed another man. The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, but it re-entered the palace in the person of David. Have you ever thought of yourself that every time you go into work, that the Holy Spirit is entering that place of work? You know the people that you go, that you work with, they haven't been to church on the weekend. They've been doing the exact opposite in most cases. I remember at Atomic Energy of Canada when I used to work. Hey, what was your weekend like? The guys around me, their idea of a great weekend was to have got drunk. Several of them, not more than one of them and not just the ones who are including the bosses in some cases but you've been here you take church to them the spirit is not there but it re-enters through you what would happen if every week as we go back into work we're saying we're just taking the Holy Spirit back into where we are at work <laughs> remember, remember that character Ziggy Many years ago, somebody gave me a a, a calendar. There's big calendars with big cartoons. And one thing was on a Ziggy on a Monday morning standing in front of this long mirror. Where you can see all of yourself. He said, hey, Ziggy, it's you and me against the world. And frankly, I think we're going to get cream today. (laughs) But this is the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. Jesus, it's you and me. It's you and me back into the world today. What's going to happen You know. These are not artifices. These are not mental gimmicks. This is truth. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? And so the temple is going back into the world. They don't come to the church. The church goes to them in you and in me. And in that place, nothing sticks out like a servant. Absolutely nothing. This is not what the world is good at. Remember, they are not impressed by what we don't do that they do. They are impressed by what we do that they cannot do. Service is one thing that doesn't come naturally to them. I remember many years ago, at American of Canada, many I should now begin to say decades ago now, uh, in, in the lunchtime, some of the guys used to play chess. Some were good, the rest of us were just kibitzers, you know, just around having lunch. And one time I was having a banana for lunch, and there was a guy on the table on the other side, maybe four or five feet away. So I said, hey Ken, can you pass me the garbage can? Because I want to throw my bananas. He kicked it across. He said, nothing like service is there. I mean, He was angry. In that kind of an atmosphere, in that kind of a setting, servants stick out like a sore thumb. Joe what used to say? Servants are irresistible by divine design. They stick out like a sore thumb and people respond and wonder why. Why is it? I remember the story. I've forgotten many of the details, but there was a pastor who was actually candidating in a particular place. And... Uh, after the weekend, preaching was over. He had gone downstairs for the fellowship hall in the evening. And I guess nobody was there. So this pastor started arranging some chairs and stuff like that. And at the end of the session, there was an elder who was kind of leaning in the corner, you know, one of these, like this. And he came up to me and said, he said, I really wasn't going to vote for you at all. He said, I had no interest in you at all. He said, but anyone who serves like that, I'll follow him anywhere. He just, his, the servants, pastor's preaching didn't impress anyone. It's kind of a surprise that I've been here for that long. Because I don't arrange too many chairs. But but it was interesting that he would see the pastor arrange the chairs and said, I'll follow you wherever you want to go. Servants are irresistible by divine design. And you can be a servant in the workplace. Now This requires a, a very deliberate shift in focus. And it's a focus on relationships as being prior. In the book Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Eugene Peterson says, People are at the center of Christian work. We have become so accustomed to evaluating our work in terms of productivity that we have little sense of its meaning in terms of creativity. We need to learn to ask these questions of our work. Here's a beautiful question. Are persons being impoverished, is my work resulting in victims or celebrants? Is my work resulting in victims or celebrants? The character of our work is shaped not by accomplishments or possessions, but in the birth of relationships. We learn a name, start a friendship, we follow up on a smile or maybe even a grimace. Such work can be done within the structure of any job, career, or profession. This past week, this was reinforced me. I was at M- MBC speaking there. In the afternoon time, I usually go over to the hub and get myself a little sandwich and I'd sit outside. And this Friday, just the last day I was there, it was more, cr- more crowded. So there was one table where there was just one lady sitting by herself and there were three other chairs. I said, is it okay if I sit down here? She, I said, fine. So she was reading. I think she was she was reading To Kill a Mockingbird. And then she kind of put the book down and just made a couple of remarks about the sermons and stuff like that. So I asked her which church she goes to. And she has an aging mother that has been going for a long time. To this particular church that I will not mention. So she takes her there. She said, but I myself am just dying on the vine. Because I'm not getting fed in that church at all. And all of a sudden I could see a tear just kind of make its way down here. You know, that's that sensitivity follow up. And I'm not really very good at this kind of stuff. But I was sitting there and I said, are you okay? Oh, my whole life is being wasted. And I would follow the whole story. you know. At the end of that I was able to just pray with her. Take some time to pray with her. You know. Those are opportunities when he says you can pick up on a smile or maybe even a grimace. One of the things I'm discovering is that pain around us is an open door. Pain is an open door to fruitful witness. Uh, Claire goes on to write in that same letter about lady said, on our way out of the restaurant where Lem had given this tribute to Ken, uh, Lem put her arm around me and said, I am completely in awe of your faith. I will continue to tell people in my new job. Of how you prayed for me and of how Jesus healed me. And sure enough, after she left, we got a call from a friend of Lem's. Whose relative is in intensive care. Apparently, Lem told them, go get Claire to come and pray in Jesus' name because he heals. Talk about expectations like that. But this is what I mean. Uh, pick up on a relationship. Pick up on a on a clue here and there. That has to talk about the person's heart. And just minister in Jesus' name. But By the way, this is why... Cultivating personal intimacy with God is so important. Because otherwise at moments like this, at supreme moments like this, when you can put a conversation into sacred place, you are tongue-tied. You don't want to be that. Because again, they know prayer as mechanical. They know rote prayers. They don't know anybody who prays as if God really exists. I know often when Sham used to be involved in the music uh, thing with Eleanor and all of her opera productions and stuff like that, Eleanor would always ask her to pray. And most of these people were non-Christians. And one time when she finished praying, a lady came running up to her and said, You pray like you know this person. (laughs) What? Surprise, surprise. That's what Christianity is all about, right? This is life eternal that they might know you, the only true God. How tragic it would be that we're in that kind of a situation where we pick up on something like that and are tongue-tied and don't know how to pray. This is why developing personal intimacy in the value of obscurity is so crucial, because this is what work is all about. So what will, enable, what will enable this kind of an approach to pride, or resisting pride through humble service, because people and relationships are important over the long haul? And, and this is where Sabbath comes in. Sabbath is so important. I can't speak about work without speaking about Sabbath, right? In scripture, Sabbath simply means stop. That's what the word means, stop. And so let me just talk about a few things. You've heard all this stuff before, just a good reminder at this time. First of all, just sleep, sleep itself. We're in a sleep deprived culture. Psalm 127 says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, his builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. For he grants sleep to those he loves. And at least one translation says the Hebrew can be translated. For he grants in sleep to those who loves. I won't be surprised. You know? First of all, sleep itself is a gift from God. But he gives to us in our sleep. I mean, how many people can testify having gone to bed at one night, getting up the next morning. And suddenly something you were thinking about the previous night is crystal clear. Or at least a lot clearer than before. God often gives to us in our sleep. Uh, I love Peterson's one line. He says, sleep is God's method of getting us out of the way so we won't interfere with his work. So at least for those eight, nine hours, we can't mess up what God is doing, right? It's a healthy perspective. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's disciplines, hubris, and pride once again. And then we awaken. We awaken into a world in which God has been at work. It's such a, Sabbath is also a mindset. Sabbath is not just one day in seven. Sabbath is a mindset. Remember Isaiah 55 again? Moving from rest to work, not from work to rest. It's to down tools to exchange his thoughts and his ways for my thoughts and my ways. And then we go out. We are led forth in joy and peace. All that stuff that you learned from living as called people in a driven world. But the central piece of that is exactly this rhythm, moving from rest to work. What did Jesus say in John chapter five? My father is at work, and therefore I am also at work. The son does nothing except what he sees the father do. The son speaks nothing except what he sees the father speak. See, the Bible begins with God at work. Opening chapter, Genesis chapter 1, God's busy working. And you know where he's working? He's not working in a church. He's not working in a synagogue. He's working out in the world where you go out to work. That is the sphere of God's activity. And it's interesting that man's first full day. Adam and Eve were created what? On day 6, right? That's what it says. And what was day 7? Sabbath. What did they do on day 7? Nothing. The very man's first full day was to do absolutely nothing. But to enter into the work of God. So Genesis chapter 1 sets the rhythm for us. Our work, your work, Monday to Friday, mine, same time, involves... Moving into a place where God is already at work, recognizing that work and entering into that work, and so bringing God into that work environment. We already talked about how you can pray with people. I mean, just into the work itself, so you can sense that work. Uh, some of you know Kevin allford Kevin Doreen's uh, son. Kevin Kevin used to grew up in this church and he's in Cal- has been in Calgary for many years now. Uh, Kevin was an executive with uh, Toyota for many years, and you know uh, it. Kevin prayed regularly about the work that lay before him that day. And each morning while he was showering, he would specifically ask God for a, work, for a word regarding work. So much so that his non-Christian colleagues, when Kevin walked in, would say, what did God say to you in the shower this morning? And not jokingly, seriously. Because he knew he was entering into a place where God was already at work and he was going to join God. So when you go back to work, on Tuesday, wherever you're going he's already there, he's working all around you, God is at work and you just need to enter into that work, which includes doing your own work first of all because no one's going to respect you if you don't do your work properly all of this is not an excuse to slough off work, remember aspiration still is crucial, although ambition may be sinful, aspiration is, but in, out of that context of respect there's all kinds of opportunities to demonstrate things, and remember Nehemiah, as you read through the book of Nehemiah he spent four months in prayer before he started building that wall. But throughout that time when he was building that wall, he was shooting up sentence prayers all the time. He saturated his work in that kind of sentence prayer because he was aware of the fact that it was God's work that he was doing all along. So we already talked about praying. And then weekly corporate worship. This is what is going on in here. There's two reasons given in the Bible for the sabbath the exodus reason and the deuteronomy reason they are different in exodus uh, six days you shall labor and do all your work but the seventh day is a sabbath to the lord your god on it you shall do no work for six days the lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day so the exodus reason for entering into sabbath is this rest to work mentality is Because God rested on the seventh day. The seventh day, which is man's first full day, is a day of just enjoying God. That's the Exodus reason. The Deuteronomy reason is different. Deuteronomy 5, which recaps the Ten Commandments, says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day, the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Notice why. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. You see, for 400 years, this community of people were defined by one thing only, brick making. No names, no identities, no significance apart from how many bricks can you make for Pharaoh each day. Each human being was thoroughly dehumanized by his work and defined by his or her work as you're only good for making so many bricks. If you're no good for making bricks, you're out of here, we don't need you. And they're going literally that. So the Deuteronomy reason for the Sabbath today tells us that you stop from work one day in seven for these reasons. First of all, it is a reminder for you that your work does not define you. You are defined by your relationships. So it's to to stop and say, I am not defined by this one day. This reminds me, I'm not defined by my work. All those titles that we have at work, they're important. If you're moving up, doing fine, that's fine. But they don't mean a thing. You're defined by the relationships that you've in. Secondly, it's also a reminder to say, I'm not important enough to be indispensable. They can get along without me for one day in seven. It's also a day to stop one day in seven and say to your work, you don't own me. God does. Ben Patterson in his book, Work and Worship, he says, Sabbath keeping is not a matter of mastering new techniques and time management. You know what that does? That only may help you to work even harder, try to do even more. It is much more fundamental than that. It is a matter of repentance and conversion. It means renouncing a way of life that has no space for God and choosing by faith a life that does. Until this basic repentance and conversion happens, the techniques are no use. The real issue is if you and I are too busy to stop working one day a week, we are too busy, period. Our problem is sin, not lack of time, and we need to cry out to God for mercy. Because this Sabbath is what enables us to move from rest to work. It is what breaks the tremendous pressure all around us to have our work define us. And it says, no, it's my relationship that defined me. I am not indispensable, which is a cure to pride. And to say, you don't own me. God owns. One last thing. And with that, we're finished. So basically, here's what we learned. To being human in the workplace, watch out for pride. Handle obscurity like David. Practice Sabbath. And remember, be alert to opportunities to bless. The power of life and death is in the tongue. And it will be a whole sermon in itself. You guys have learned and experienced the power of blessing here. But my journey started in 1995. I was, I was on a sabbatical. I mean, these are the most precious gifts you've ever given to us because that has defined our ministry and I trust has blessed you in return. But I was, Sham and I was sitting in a class where Eugene Peterson was uh, teaching on worship. Oh, sorry, it's on spirituality and ministry. He says, pastors, don't ever say to your people, you're dismissed. He said, they're going out to work. This is the last thing they're going to hear from you. Bless them. Well, that was just a total revolution for me. By the way, that's why he also said the first thing he said is don't just say good morning to them. You're calling them to worship (laughs) so call them to worship when they come in and bless them when they go out and that's a whole long story in itself which I don't have the time to tell you but God just began to teach me little by little by little the power of the tongue to bless and you know what you don't have to be an expert at this don't think oh I, I've got to do it like Sundar I've got to do it like somebody else no you know, I knew nothing about this when I started two, two quick incidents and with that we're finished uh, several years ago on a, it was Thursday evening I think it was so I came from the office and I was going through this way to go home and outside in the lobby, um, there was an, a lady in our congregation who ministers to younger women. And there was a lady, she was sitting with her. And she used to come to this church many years ago. And I hadn't seen her for a while. So I just walked over and said, how, Hi, how, how are you doing? Connected very quickly. And I was on my way. And so I said, God bless you, and I walked away. That was it. I just said three words. It was fairly perfunctory. I hadn't given it the kind of thought that I give when I do my benedictions here. Well, the next morning, the lady who was ministering called me she said i need to let you know what happened after you left she said that woman just broke down she started sobbing she said that's the first time any man has ever blessed me my goodness that sent goosebumps up my spine three almost unthinking words you don't have to be an expert you just have to want to bless by the way this is another reason why you need to learn in obscurity to feed your soul because that's where god gives you fuel to bless people with and to show you how unchurched people, who are not Christians, thrive and long for—although this woman was a believer, just hadn't been blessed. Uh, two years ago, I think, when we last went to Singapore, only two years ago, right? Uh, when Sham and I went to Singapore to visit my mother, um, so we were flying Singapore Airlines. Oh, sorry, it was Cambodia. I think it was Cambodia. Anyway, we were flying Singapore Airlines. And if anyone's flown Singapore Airlines, you thoroughly get spoiled. Of course, you can't go to any other airlines after that. But uh, but these just, just these air, these hostesses are so beautiful to look at they're also very very tender in their service and they knew that sham was kind of afraid of flying a little bit and so this young woman would come and keep consoling her and bringing her all kinds of things but at the end of that sham wrote a beautiful blessing a simple blessing for her on the card and gave it to her anyway that's the last we thought we'd ever see of her so we were outside in the reception area and we were collecting our luggage and she came running up to sham you know she'd lost she left the card behind and she said, give me those words again. Give me those words again. That was a person who wasn't even a believer. They're hungry and long for blessing. I mean, imagine what a force we can be in the workplace. We're sensitive. It allows us to bless people. I hope this has been helpful to you. This is some of the perspectives that were on, on my heart. Uh, let's pray together. Lord, just thank you so much for the privilege of coming back to my home pulpit. Thank you for these men and women. So good to see their faces again. Uh, for all the stories behind the faces of the people that I know. The many, many conversations we've had. The journey that we've traveled together. This is all stuff they've heard before. But I just pray, Father, that on this particular day, at this particular juncture, in the rhythm of our annual, and in our annual rhythms where we're at, that you would just bring these things back afresh. And for me personally, I just want to thank you so much for teaching me today that I already have the mind of Christ. I just need to let it work itself out. So I pray that our people will be blessed with hope, with with just a, a fresh sense of enthusiasm, not here's one more thing I have to do, but this is what I can do because of Jesus. I pray that this year at work will be whether the work is inside the four walls of a church or in the four walls of a home or out in the corporate steel towers or in the classrooms or wherever, Father. This will be a year when each one of us will have the incredible joy of seeing our soul work prepare us to take the Spirit into our places of work and be a blessing in Jesus' name. students who are going back to university and the kids who are going back to school. So if you are in one of those two categories, going back to school or back to university, we'll just come to the front here. We'll just left as a congregation to bless you guys. Okay. Okay. If you folks can stretch out your hands over this beautiful treasure that God has given to us. You know, as I saw you young ones come right up to the front. I want to bless you with the protection of Jesus. May you always sense the guardian angels all around you and may he keep you safe from anyone who has any designs of evil or harm towards you. And then I want to bless you with diligence. May God give you the power to work hard. (laughs) I want to bless your minds with a capacity to understand truth and beauty in creation. And then I want to bless you with friends. I know how important friends are some of you have the capacity to be friends to those who are not, don't have any friends and I want to give you eyes to see those lonely people as we heard in the story today that have no friends at all and for those of you who long to have friends and I know how important that is I want to bless you with that one person or two, two persons who sees who you are and blesses you and then I want to bless you with faith to believe what your eyes cannot see but what is true because you will be presented with things that are contrary to God's word and I want to bless you with a capacity to believe what is true but what cannot be seen as children and as young people you have a tremendous capacity to believe the supernatural I want to bless you with a bigger picture of God the Father and Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit and for those of you young men and women in our youth ministry are going to learn about identity. I want to bless you with a strong and a robust sense of who you have been made in Jesus and who you have been called to become. We love you and we commit ourselves to walk with you throughout this year as parents and as pastors and as teachers. Go in Jesus' name. Amen.